This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, March 7th, 2022 on your public radio station, KUAF. You can listen to us anywhere by asking your smart speaker to play KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellums. In about four minutes, Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore talks to the CEO of Canoe, an electric vehicle manufacturer that's relocated here. And later, the work underway to create a larger audience for dance in Northwest Arkansas. There's just a much greater comfort level with taking in, say, a a music concert or um, going to see a movie or even a, a theater production um, just because of regularity. We, 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 especially in Northwest Arkansas, are not in the practice or the habit of going to see dance. We learn about dance chants later this hour. The U.S. Marshals Museum in Fort Smith is looking for a new president and CEO. Patrick Weeks announced his resignation Friday. Weeks is facing felony charges of aggravated assault with a firearm in connection with an incident that took place in late December. A press release from the museum indicates a national search will be conducted by the Lindauer firm and is expected to take about four months. Some state officials expect the number of tourists coming to Arkansas for outdoor experiences to continue rising. This week on Talk Business and Politics, Stacey Hurst, the state secretary of the Department of Parks, Heritage and Tourism, said National Park Service attendance data shows a record increase for some federal parks in the state. Hot Springs National Park is now the 38th most visited park in their system over 400 parks. They recorded over 2 million visits. So um, it's just a, we're in a great position to continue to grow our tourism industry and uh, people have discovered Arkansas and we don't think that's going to change. Reports from the Arkansas's Department of Finance and Administration say the state's 2% tourism tax generated over $20 million last year, a record high. And Secretary Hurst says a facility for marketing locally grown Arkansas food in northwest Arkansas that was announced last week could become a model for agritourism in the state. She says tourists are interested in unique food experiences, like the upcoming Market Center of the Ozarks. And I think we can duplicate that across the state of Arkansas. Um, we've got the eastern part of the stra- state, you know, their huge agricultural area. And I think that they can add a component of sort of that small farm local agritourism that will drive visitation over there. Last week, the Walton Family Foundation announced plans for the 45,000-square-foot food hub in Springdale. The food hub scheduled to be open in 2024 at a cost of nearly $31 million. The website GasBuddy.com reports the average gallon of gas in Arkansas is 48 cents more expensive today than just a week ago today. The site's survey of more than 1,800 gas stations places the cost at $3.69 per gallon. That's still lower than the national average of just more than $4.06 per gallon. The week begins with the fewest Arkansas COVID-19 hospitalizations count since Thanksgiving week. The Arkansas Department of Health reports 336 patients with the virus in hospitals in Arkansas as of late yesterday. The Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team will open play in the SEC tournament Friday afternoon in the quarterfinals against a yet-to-be-determined opponent. The Razorbacks earned the fourth seed in the tournament event. And there is music tonight in the Stella Boyle Smith Concert Hall on the University of Arkansas campus. A guest artist concert at 7.30 features violinist Drew Irvin and Dayton Strick. The program includes works by Astor Piazzolla, and it is free... It will also be streamed live on the UARC Music YouTube channel. 
This is Ozarks at Large. In November of 2021, a new electric vehicle company called Canoe announced it would be moving its headquarters to Bentonville and building a factory in Pryor, Oklahoma. Canoe's CEO, Tony Aquila, has also been chosen to be a member of Governor Asa Hutchinson's Council on Future Mobility. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore recently spoke with Aquila over Zoom and asked, after a long career in the automotive industry, why the move to electric vehicles? Well, it's it's sea level change in the industry. I mean, you know, fossil fuel vehicles kind of run their course um, from a technology advancement perspective, and uh, you know, electric vehicles are you know at that point where they're only going to get better and better and better. And global warming, as well as the return on capital for the working people, because you know, gasoline vehicles have a lot more parts, a lot more wear, and you know, rising inflation, it's just a kind of a perfect time. There's a lot of factors that come together when those sea changes happen and they've all kind of, you know, maturated to this to this point. Canoe as a company has had a lot of iterations over its short lifespan. There have been partnerships with traditional auto companies like Hyundai and Kia that have come and gone. At one point, there was uh, the idea to do a subscription-style service like Netflix for EVs almost. Can you give some insight on Canoe and the business model as it stands right now? Yeah. So, look, I think, you know, as we provided capital and got more and more involved in our deep experience on customer journey across multiple owners in the vehicle process, you know, we, we never believe there is one size fits all because you have, you know, you have big companies which need depreciation and tax efficiency as well as long life. Um, you have people that want to own the asset. You have some people that want to lease it just like a membership. And so, you know, we kind of wanted to guide the business in a, in, a, in a more for the people kind of an approach uh, to meet their needs. And so, you know, young companies kind of go through a lot of gyrations in the beginning stage. And then, you know, we've invested, founded, you know, bought into, bought up in uh, multiple companies uh, in this space and kind of help guide those evolutions having had done it as a founder myself a few times, you know, I kind of know the way. So, you know, that those are just organic things that happen. And right now we are, you know, very maturated to the point of what the market wants and needs and, and where it's going. So when you can kind of hit that trifecta, that's really your product mix and your go-to-market mix. Do you, do you find, especially in this like startup world that folks may be trying to reinvent the wheel time and time again and 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 maybe realize that the wheel is the wheel for a very good reason? So look, I think that, you know, for example, in our vehicle, we don't have a wheel. You know, we have it's like <laughs> the yoke. So it's there there is time for change. Like we we don't want to push steel like Detroit does. And we also don't want people to have to buy a chassis multiple times. I mean, you should be able to upgrade. And, you know, I mean, it's ecological, right? I mean, the, the model, the, the traditional model is expired. Is there one size fits all approach? No, because it's transitional. And I think that's where when you get, you know, people that kind of understand tech, you know, you got three living generations, you know, and you have to get the market through it, right? You know, this is mobility. This is advanced mobility and it's clean mobility. And so there is certain components of it, you know, like it needs to drive on the road. <laughs> um, you know, eventually it'll get above it. 
Um, but right now for, for, for the next, you know, four car generations, we'll, we'll be, we'll be looking at things that way. And autonomy steps in, you know, there's just, this is a more aggressive evolutionary curve, but the traditional gas engine, you know, the vehicle was designed around that with batteries. It's a totally different geometry of things, right? So that's why it's going to change. You're going to get a lot more space. You know, if you look at our vehicles, you just get tons of space. But those things are done. Also, you know, the dealer experience is not the greatest, right? I mean, sure. you know, right? It's it's the wheel is the wheel in your point on that one because of a lot of laws. And, and I believe there are a lot of good dealers out there. But also, you know, the problem is the process in itself, right? Consumers are used to much more straight through capabilities. And so, the, you know, in the automotive industry, I always tell everybody, consumers have had consistently an inconsistent experience. Hmm. And, uh, and of course they don't want that anymore. So it's really becoming to have a really super smart platform that can allow a customer and the trading partners, you know, to really, you know, reduce the friction because nobody likes going, you know, and spending half a day at a dealership when it should be done over the air. Let's talk about coming to Bentonville. Uh, currently, uh, your offices hold space in Torrance, California, and in Justin, Texas. What was the impetus to come to Northwest Arkansas specifically? Look, I mean, you know, it, it is it is one of the jewels of the heartland, and you know, it's 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 like it's like an oasis of innovators. Uh, you've got many founders, founder families. And, and generationally, they've passed on this, this founder mentality of you can do it and you can do it here and you can do it in an inclusive and respectful way in nature and everything. I mean, so, you know, a lot of people don't understand Northwest Arkansas. I mean, to me, Eastern Oklahoma, Northwest Arkansas, henceforth, the Cherokee Nation, mm-hmm. I think is just one great people. And, you know, it's come to the country's aid many times. And, and it moves a disproportionate amount of goods. So these people understand advanced mobility needs. And, you know, founders love being amongst founders. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of like a can-do environment. So, you know, you have people, you have energy, you have culture, you got art, you get reinvestment back in the community. I mean, if you look at Detroit, right? I mean, Henry Ford would not be happy if he was here, right? This is a great bolt-on, you know, next edition of what's happening in the region. And it can bring, you know, light blue-collar, high-paying jobs for more diversity, you know, across. That's why we picked prior so we could be in the Cherokee Nation. Uh, You know, these people don't move. They like their area. They take care of the land. You know, there's a lot of veterans. Uh, So, you know, it's just a great workforce. So the Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson has been making a major push on future mobility, and he has brought you into the fold to be a part of the Arkansas Council on Future Mobility. Can you tell me a little bit about how did that relationship come together with Governor Hutchinson, and what can you tell us about the priorities and goals of this council? You know, look, as we went out and met a lot of governors, once we had the vehicle design and we had done the crash testing, and we knew we had a winner. You know, we now said, okay, where are we going to build it? And, you know, we wanted to bring as much stuff to the U.S., which took a little bit of zigzagging. And, and as you see geopolitically, right, the decisions we made are really playing out to be super positive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you come across 
the governors of these two states, they're very American. They care about the heartland. They're job focused. They're, they're, they're not so politically bent as much as they are, you know, regionally focused, right? So that made it a lot easier. In addition to that, I think there's a lot of pushing going on from companies because mobility is a big part of the industry. You got, you know, you know, three Fortune 100s in the area that are tied to moving goods. So, you know, these, these, these governors have been educated, you know, by the industry as well in on both sides of this, right? You got aviation in Oklahoma. You got aviation also in 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 Arkansas. You got advanced aviation uh, occurring in both. So you know, and then of course you have JB Hunt and you know Walmart and Tyson, and you just have these companies that you know have to move their goods. So it's it's a good environment. The other thing too is just the attitude of people, right? It's not like you know, it's just like let's solve a pro- let's create a problem we're solving and let's solve it. And let's make the place better and let's give people jobs. I mean, it's just, it's so easier uh, to do business there because people have the right ethos. I mean, and that's that generational thing that I was talking about earlier that, you know, honestly, it, our view was these two states just stood head and shoulders above the other states that were bidding for it. Looking back at the earnings call, uh, Canoe reports $346.8 million in losses for fiscal year 2021. There are projections to deliver around 6,000 vehicles by the end of calendar year 2022. What does the path to profitability look like for Canoe, especially when we're thinking of, you know, as you're talking about these chassis, they're being marketed as a million mile chassis, you know. You're going to have to buy a car a lot less less often if you're putting a million miles on it. And we're talking about high workers' wages. How do you you find the path to profitability with all of that in mind? Yeah. So first of all, you build a great product. You don't try to build a business to make money, right? I mean, money should be the second thought process. If you build something of great value for consumers and for for industrial users, you're going to make money. It's not my first company to start. It's not my first company to refound. And I can tell you all the businesses we have, you know, they they make money, but it takes sometimes 10 years. And, you know, just like it did, you know, for for Sam Walton and others, you're not doing it to make money. If you are, you're probably not going to be as big or as successful, nor is your product going to be as unique because you got to be willing to sacrifice and, and, and persevere. So, from my perspective, one of the ways we did that is we said drive by wire, break by wire, harmonize, articulate. Why do we want to, if we want to protect the earth, why do we want to, you know, make people buy chassis when they don't need to? Let them spend more money frequently on a top hat. Think of Nike, you know, when, you know, how many tennis shoes do you have in the car? You know, you'll change your top hat more frequently. You have a better experience. You can upgrade your infotainment at will. You can live better. Like our food cash flow per year per customer. And if the platform can do it over the air and you can just upgrade modularly, if you really look at the platform, you could have you could start with the same chassis and you could be young, single, adventuring, mountain climbing, doing all kinds of stuff. You take out the truck, right? And then, you know, five years later, you meet a girl, you, you start to settle down, you know, you start thinking making a family. So okay, well, you know what? Now I'm gonna go to the LV. And uh, then, you know, a little later on, you want to go to the LDV because you're starting a small business, but that chassis can follow you. And 
that's a meaningful amount of money. And by the way, an electric vehicle, you know, is four times more efficient on the environment, but it puts $4,000 of free cash flow on a working homes family that has two vehicles plus that are, that are old and that are also getting more service repair. You know, we're down to 2000 parts versus a typical car is, you know, four to 6,000 parts. Mm. And that right there passes on savings. And so, you know, but the upgrading mechanism, and if you think of Nike as an example, you know, people will, you know, be able to refresh more frequently and at the same time be more ecological about it. That was the CEO of Canoe, Tony Aquila, speaking with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. You can hear their full conversation at OzarksAtLarge.com or on the Ozarks at Large Stories podcast feed, where you can hear all of the stories from our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Theater Squared presents Tiger Style. This new comedy tackles the successes and failures of tiger parenting as Albert and Jennifer Chen reached academic achievement but just can't conquer adulthood. Tiger Style is on stage and streaming through April 3rd, 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets and information. NWA Fashion Week arrives at the momentary this week. The events kick off in earnest Thursday night and last through Saturday night. Each night has specific partners and artists, and full details can be found at interform.art. We asked Rochelle Bailey, the communications manager for Interform, to come to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to give us a bit of a preview. I think everybody is going to look forward to it. It's the first show since 2019, since before the Wow. You know, the deal. I don't want to I don't want to say it. I don't want to jinx it. Um, but we have Stephen Kolb coming. Uh, if any of you are familiar with the CFDA, it's the Council of Fashion Designers of America. And we just became members. So it's kind of a big deal. It's the same group that has New York Fashion Week. So that's kind of kind of something we're excited about. And he is the, the president of the, yes. the CFDA? Yeah. So we're really excited to have him. He'll be there. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Renat Brodak, but she was on Making the Cut. She'll be showing her line on Saturday. And we also have Walmart Beauty Isle. So, you know, we're in the land of Walmart, and so we're excited to have them. They're going to be showcasing Free Assembly, which is a line in Walmart, and a designer named Kato Mamalu. And many of you know her from... Um, Project Runway. So we've got a couple of uh, A-listers that are coming, and we're really excited to share that with everybody, as well as our Emerge designers. And we have Marshallese and Congolese students who are showcasing their designs as well. And it's fabrics from all over the world. So we are just pumped and and so ready to present this to everybody in Northwest Arkansas. So it's been two years. Yes. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Since you've done live, in person. Mm-hmm. Y'all have grown in that time. We certainly have. So what do you think it's going to be like for the first time in two years with the CFDA membership, mm-hmm. with everything that has happened with Interform? I think it's going to be bi- the bigger, the better, right? And it, we're having it in a new in a new space as well, because, you know, before we had it at Drake Field, we had it at The Record, and it's going to be at The Momentary this time, and bigger production. So, 
you don't want to give away any secrets, but sure. there's music, there's mm-hmm. lights. There's going to be dancing, some really? performances. Um, so we're incorporating uh, a lot of the arts into the show. It's going to be very entertaining. Fashion shows can be one of those things where people are intimidated. Like I've That's ne- true. I've never been to one. I don't know if mm-hmm. I fit. Maybe I'm too old. Maybe I'm too this. Maybe no. I'm too that. What would you say to people who've never been to one? I would say definitely come to this one because what you're going to see on the runway are real people. And that's what people don't expect. They expect to see these people who are like a size zero or a certain age, a certain height. And the important thing about Northwest Arkansas Fashion Week is that we show the community back to itself. And we are the most inclusive and diverse runway show in the region. So don't be concerned about how you look. Come as you are and experience it as someone who enjoys fashion, which I think we all do to a certain extent. Oh, of course we do. (laughs) And I think it's also, you'll see fashion you want. Yes, you'll see fashion that you can actually wear. Are there going to be some that are a little, you know, out of the ordinary that you wouldn't wear to the grocery store? Sure, of course, but that makes it fun, right? You are going to see wearable fashion, and I think that's really important. How do people get those tickets that are going fast? You got to go to interform.art. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-M dot art. And this is our biggest fundraiser. It helps fundraise for programs like our sewing classes and our design and designer in residency program. So we're not just taking the money and like putting it in our bed and rolling around in it. Like we're <laughs> it's going right back into our programming. And uh, we really appreciate everyone's support. And finally, if someone's listening and they have a niece, a nephew, a son, a daughter who's interested in design yeah. and they want to learn more. Absolutely. Interform.art. And we've got Emerge applications live now. So if you want to apply, definitely do it. Rochelle Bailey is the communications manager for Interform, the presenters of NWA Fashion Week Thursday through Saturday nights at the Momentary in Bentonville. You can find out more at interform.art. And also there, you can discover more about Interform's other programs like sewing classes and designer-in-residency projects. And if you're at the first night of Fashion Week, Thursday night, say hello. I'll be an MC with Sunshine Broder. This is Ozarks at Large. Just as fashion is developing a wider base in the region, so is dance. Last summer, Karen Castleman, a dancer, choreographer, educator, and dance community organizer, surveyed residents of Northwest Arkansas to find out how deep a desire there is to see dance. She says there is a strong passion for dance, even if there isn't always a corresponding deep knowledge. Enter Dance Chance. Castleman started hosting dance conversations on Zoom during the earlier days of the pandemic and then randomly drew four attending choreographers' names out of a hat for them to develop work for a program called Dance Chance. Four more were randomly selected for the sequel, and now we're upon Dance Chance 3.0. It'll take place Wednesday night at Nadine Baum Studios in Fayetteville. Castleman says this third iteration is still very much in tune with what she found out through that survey. There was definite interest in seeing dance, especially in things that they had not seen previously. So maybe a a style of dance or a form that was unfamiliar. Um, But the biggest barrier was just not knowing about things happening. So it pointed to a, a big need for communication and for just more regularity of 
dance events being um, presented to the public. When you say not a knowledge of things happening, you mean actual events as opposed to people not knowing what was happening on stage, right? Yes, actual events, yeah. Um, And so Dance Chance was born out of a desire to not only connect audiences with new styles of dance or forms of dance that they may not have seen, but to give a platform to local dance makers who are without very many regular opportunities to demonstrate their work, practice their craft. Um, And so Dance Chance is a very uh, low barrier for entry sort of event that gives both an unfamiliar audience and a growing artist in the form of making dances an opportunity to kind of come together over a work in progress, um, a first showing of something, and and have space for discussion, for questioning, for asking questions in both directions, so that both the choreographer and the audience leave with kind of a greater understanding or appreciation of what they've either seen or what they're working on. All right, let's talk about Dance Chance 3.0. We are super excited to present four local choreographers, um, Jane Arona, Christopher Hoffman, Julius Pulliam, and Amy Kessler-Weber who are, have been working over the last two months on new works uh, to present for us. And then we'll have a local uh, dance scholar, Michelle Summers, facilitating a question and answer after each piece with the audience and the choreographer. Can you give us a hint of what we might, I mean, styles or do you know? Well, yes, I have an idea, and I think there will be, I can just safely say there will be something for everyone, from the contemporary ballet to hip-hop to theatrical with technology involved. It, there, it's going to be a little bit of absolutely everything. Why do you think there is um, a challenge to get some of us to go to dance. I mean, you think of the art forms and other than perhaps, you know, cave drawings we found from millennia ago, dance would seem to be one of the oldest, right? If not the oldest, body movement. So what is our reluctance or, or what has created sort of this, this gap in um, accessibility to performances? Well, I definitely think that uh, there's just a, much greater comfort level with taking in, say, a a music concert or um, going to see a movie or even a a theater production um, just because of regularity. We, 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 especially in Northwest Arkansas, are not in the practice or the habit of going to see dance. But I do think that it stems from misperceptions because you're right, reading body language, reading the body is is the thing that any one person has been doing the longest since being born you're reading the language of the people around you before you even have verbal language so uh, it should be the most familiar and uh, I think dance chance is a great way to break down some barriers and to give people an opportunity to start thinking and talking about it as an art form in a way that's not intimidating you mentioned uh, Ms. Summers will be there, the, the dance scholar. Will there be sort of a, a back and forth with audience, sort of a, a talk back like we sometimes see in theater? 
Yes. In fact, this one's unique. We're using a process called the Liz Lerman critical response process, which is common in college dance program departments, uh, but it's also used by a, a variety of um, writers, thinkers, readers, scientists who are seeking feedback on a process. So it, it's an opportunity for um, Michelle to lead our audience through a process that gives the choreographer, the creator of the work, tools and resources to go back into the studio and continue working. So there'll be some very specific uh, ways of asking questions that Michelle will guide us through that will um, start with observations, a moment that stood out to you or um, a mood or a feeling that came across clearly. Um, and then and then we'll move on to allowing the choreographer to ask questions of the audience as well. What about choreographers, dance makers, and dancers, their desire to have an audience to perform in front of? I'm, I'm sure you've heard about that. So I think that's probably the biggest reason that I was drawn to start something like Dance Chance. Um, it's actually based on an event with the same name that I participated as an emerging choreographer um, in Chicago uh, when I lived there prior to moving to Northwest Arkansas. And the benefit that I saw it play in the community of dancers in Chicago was something that I saw a need for here in Northwest Arkansas, uh, but even more so here because there are fewer places for a choreographer to find a dance company to create their work on and have it presented. And so this kind of subverts the need for lots of full-time dance organizations presenting local work and gives choreographers kind of an immediate pathway to presenting their work in front of an audience. Let me ask about that creation and in-progress sort of uh, system for you, because if you're a writer, you can write words and see if they're working for you. If you're a playwright, maybe you don't have actors speaking your lines for you, but you still have them on the page. If you're a painter or a sculptor, you see results. If you're a choreographer, how much can you do until you actually get bodies involved and know if it's working the way you want it to work or not? There are definitely some choreographers who do a fair amount of planning ahead of time alone in the studio. And that might involve recording movement with video and then looking at it, you know, from a different perspective on the outside. But really, and I think it's the thing that draws me to dance the most, dance is community. Dance requires people to be together. Um, and so uh, that's one of the other fun things about dance chants is all of these choreographers, once their name is drawn out of the hat and they are aware that they're going to have this opportunity, they're collecting people. They're, they're looking for dancers to participate in their pieces, scheduling rehearsals and starting to get into the work in, in, in person. Karen Castleman visited with us about Dance Chance 3.0 by Zoom last week. The performance is Wednesday night from 7 until 8.30 at Nadine Baum Studios in Fayetteville. Tickets are free and can be reserved through the University of Arkansas ticket portal, uark.universitytickets.com. There will be COVID-19 protocols observed at Nadine Baum Studios. There's nobody going to be more interested in the Ozarks than we are. And this was the attitude that we had in the beginning. And so... I'd hope that the people in the, the young young people in the future, when they float this Buffalo River, 
it won't mean just a lark to them, but it will be a revelation of the mystery of creation and how beautiful it all can be if we don't mess it up. We're going to tell you who that is. You might already know if you've lived here a while. First, I'm going to tell you who is sitting across the desk from me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. It's Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. We're celebrating a birthday this week. 50. Yeah. And it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> or you. No, no. Those, those are in the rearview mirror, I'm afraid. Well, yeah. No, it's the 50th anniversary of the Buffalo River becoming the first national river, river in our, uh, the America. And there is a name that is synonymous with that designation. Several, but one that around here we think of first. Dr. Neil Compton. Yeah. Who was a physician. Uh, he was a pediatrician, right? Yeah, yeah. But he was also uh, quite a... Uh, he was a celebrated author and uh, landscape photographer, but he is credited with pretty much saving the buffalo. He started the whole movement, I guess you would say. Took the movement not just from getting people rallied here, but took it to Washington, brought a Supreme Court justice down here to canoe on the river, things like that. Right, and it actually dates back more than 50 years. It dates back to uh, 1962 when he read about uh, the the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who back then they used to say were dam happy, uh, wanted to put two hydroelectric dams on the Buffalo River. And he and some of his friends and environmental enthusiasts were very much against doing that because, of course, it would take away the beauty and cause lake formations and things along that line. So, uh, Long story short, they decided to form what's now called the Ozark Society. Still thriving. Yes. And um, the person who called the very first meeting uh, was a man by the name of Doug James, who was an ornithologist at the University of Arkansas and actually formed the first Arkansas Audubon Society. That's right. But um, this is from a 2012 interview that the Ozark Society did with him, and he talks about this first meeting. The first chapter, I organized the University of Arkansas chapter of the Ozark Society. That was the first chapter. Then, of course, it went to Missouri, Louisiana, and so forth, and, you know, several chapters in Arkansas. And I, I didn't really envision that at the beginning, but it was... I can understand that it was a logical progression. After the Ozark Society forms, they really start to work in an effort to keep the buffalo from being dammed. And it took about a decade yeah. for them to accomplish it. And, you know, they they started up media campaigns and courted local and national politicians. But there were a few developments that happened in the mid-60s that really helped their cause. The first was uh, Governor Orville Faubus in 1965 wrote to the Corps of Engineers and said he was not in favor of damming the buffalo. He's a Madison County native, so he grew up near the buffalo. Yes, and in the archives, we actually have footage of uh, Faubus and his wife Elizabeth skipping rocks on the banks of the Buffalo, and you can see it online. We have it on social media Excellent. Uh, this week. Uh, then in 1966, John Paul Hammerschmidt defeated James Trimble for the third congressional district seat. 
and uh, Trimble was pro-dam, and Hammerschmidt was anti. So uh, this clip coming up is from a prior center interview in 2009. I thought, well, you know, a free-flowing stream, and I grew up on it, and uh, it's the last vestige of the White River that isn't dammed. And bottom line, it just makes sense to leave it that way. And uh, the, the groundwork's been laid to kill the dams, with Falvis especially. And uh, they could have been revitalized, but I thought they shouldn't have been. So I just made up my own mind that, that we ought to have a uh, national park. And so I began to talk with people. All right, John Paul Hammerschmidt uh, gets elected to Congress, first Republican in the 3rd District, which has never gone Democratic since. Uh, he works in D.C. to get... The, the very powerful Arkansas senators at the time, Fulbright McClellan, on board. Well, and also— And Wilbur Mills, yes. Well, who holds the purse strings, is uh, House Ways and Means Committee chair. Right. And so um, locally, there's also a lot of support. The tourism department and local business people— and in 1969, this is also from the KTV archives— um, Channel 7 talked to Little Rock businessman Charles Johnston, and he's talking about actually taking a group of people up to Washington because there's a, uh, a hearing before a U.S. Senate subcommittee, and they want to be part of it. Many of the conservationists throughout the state um, are concerned about the presentation to be made before the Parks and Recreation subcommittee of the uh, Senate Interior and Insular Affairs Committee of the Senate. Uh, next Tuesday, uh, at which time we, uh, a group of us, are at our own expense um, going to appear in Washington uh, in support of uh, the bill introduced by Senators McClellan and Fulbright uh, to make uh, to place uh, a national park uh, on the Buffalo River here in Arkansas. And we are going to testify in favor of that, and basically our position here today with the um, Park Recreation and Travel Commission is to is to ask them uh, to support this bill that's being uh, uh, heard uh, by this subcommittee next Tuesday. Now they did vote this afternoon to support you. Yes, they voted uh, uh, three to one with uh, two abstentions. I'm glad you include this next clip here because there's another side. Um, it wasn't just the Corps of Engineers who wanted the dam. There were people in Newton County, which was a poor, sparsely populated oh, county. I, I would guess the majority. Because they needed some economic development. Right. Yeah. So so there was local support in Newton County along the Buffalo. There was support for the dam. Yeah. And, you know, there are there were people that said, yeah, this pretty resource is really nice, but we, we need some bucks. And they were being sold on, on that fact. Which they were being, you know, uh, Bull Shoals Dam. Mm-hmm. Norfolk Dam, oh, they saw Greer's Ferry. Examples yeah. that it had worked very Beaver well. Dam. Sure, yeah. sure. But um, this is a clip from Alice Andrews, who is uh, conservative and active in issues of you know environmental protection. And she talks about how some of the local residents were angry. There were people who were very unhappy because they lost land. Some of them had been there for generations. And... I, th- I think everybody in the Ozark Society understood that and never wanted that to happen. 
but the alternative was a lake. So there was support, especially locally, for the lake. Yes. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But yeah. There's somebody else you want to talk about. Well, a, a couple that were very instrumental in in this in the saving of the buffalo, and that would be Harold and Margaret, Margaret Hedges. And they were strong advocates for saving the buffalo and, and in the Ozark Society, but they actually had bought 700 acres of land on the upper buffalo and had built their dream house in 1968. And when it became a national river, they gladly sold all of their land uh, to the forestry service. Now, they did um, have control of that land for 25 years. So, you know, they were okay with that. But um, Margaret Hedges here in, in this interview from the Ozark Society talks about some of that hostility among the locals. You could feel the hostility. They had let high school out, and they had a gang of kids that had been brainwashed to believe that if they had a dam, they'd have a place to go swimming. And they had the the president of the senior class gave a dandy speech about how badly the people in Marshall needed this dam and what it was going to do for the economy and, my goodness, what it was going to do for the children. Would just be great to have this big lake they could go swimming in. By the early 70s, we still don't have a decision. Right. It's still bouncing around up in Washington. And um, people are getting a little anxious about it, uh, impatient. And even then-Governor Dale Bumpers talks about the issue at, at one of his public appearances. I feel that I have a strong responsibility to study all sides and certainly not just the economic side for the feasibility of any project. I have stated this, perhaps not to uh, as large an audience of this, I've stated this in the past, but I'd like to reiterate it. And certainly I made up my mind many months ago that I strongly favored the National River Bill for the Buffalo River, and I still do. And I sincerely hope that that bill will be enacted into law before uh, Many more days pass by. It seems to me that the thing, for reasons unknown to me, uh, just never seems to get through. I don't know of anybody much that opposes it. And I certainly hope, for the benefit of all of us, and certainly for the benefit of our environment, that that will come to pass. Dale Bumpers from 1971? Yes. All right, talking about the buffalo. Uh, Let's go full circle now back to Dr. Neil Compton. Right, and this is that 1992 interview And I I love this. He sort of just sums up uh, in about 45 seconds um, how this whole saving of the buffalo came about. We never did meet with anybody who has been over here and seen this marvelous scenery that wasn't thrilled at the outcome. Of course, in the beginning, we had no idea that we'd be victorious. It was almost impossible. The Corps of Engineers were such a powerful organization that uh, we knew we couldn't beat them. We, we didn't know just how it would turn out. But political events conspired to be in our favor. In other words, our big dam building congressman was defeated by John Paul Hammersmith, who came out for the bill. Congressman, I mean, uh, Senator Fulbright was for the bill. All the other Arkansas legislators fell in with it. And the bill was passed and signed uh, for a national park or a national river on the Buffalo in 1972. President Nixon. You can see how this effort worked. I mean, the Buffalo River is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. 
it's still there, and that's wonderful. Oh, and I remember as a kid. Uh, Field trips? Well, no, my father used to take uh, my brother and I there, and this was before it was um, a national river. And I, I have a photograph uh, holding a tiny little fish, but I was about five or six, and it was the first fish I'd ever caught, and I caught it on the Buffalo River. I think I had six or seven straight years of school where our field trip, back then you took field trips, you know, in yeah. April or May, we would spend the morning at Dog Patch, and then we would spend the afternoon along the Buffalo River. Oh, you had it lucky. See, we couldn't come up from Little Rock. It was too long of a drive. Yeah, but you had all sorts of things. You had a zoo or something. We didn't have the buffalo and dog patch. (laughs) Shoot. I'd have traded that for anything in Little Rock. We we, we knew what we had. We liked it. Um, So that's one legacy. There's the Peel Compton Foundation in Bentonville. It's kind of another legacy. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, it's a nonprofit. It's in Bentonville. And it has the original Compton home. It's, it's beautiful. I've been up there a few times. And uh, their mission actually says that they connect the community through nature, education, recreation, and preservation. And, you know, because of their obvious connection with mm-hmm. Neil Compton, they're celebrating this 50th anniversary of the Buffalo River with all kinds of things uh, going on at Peel Compton. And so I got on the phone with their uh, director of development, Jennifer Martinez-Belt, and she told me a few things about what's coming up this month. The Compton Gardens and Arboretum is actually the home of late Dr. Neil Compton, and he was known as the man who saved the buffalo. So with celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Buffalo River, Compton Gardens um, is doing quite a bit um, to celebrate and recognize this huge achievement for our state. So what are some of the things you're doing? So along our Greenway, we have our local artist, Brandon Bullitt, putting together what we're calling Buffalo River Floats. And it's really a commemorative mural on part of the Razorback Greenway right outside of Compton Gardens. And it's really inspired by all the natural elements that you'd find along the Buffalo River. So if you don't get a chance to make it to the Buffalo River in March, um, you know, Come and come and visit the mural. The the man behind Saving the River, Dr. Neil Compton, right outside of his Lake Family home. You're able to see this awesome mural. We're also having a documentary screening on Saturday, March 19th. First River on how Arkansas saved a national treasure. This is a new um, premiere viewing of um, you know what happened in 1972, and we just can't wait to share that with the community. We'll have local native tree and plant programming on March 5th and 12th, and then our famous native tree and plant sale, which everyone loves. You can get a variety of trees and plants March 28th through April 1st. So lots of programming, Randy, lots of fun. We just can't wait to get everyone out to Compton Gardens. All right. Any final thoughts about this uh, noting this anniversary? Well, I found this interview from 2012 uh, with uh, Hubert Ferguson who was very involved with the Ozark Society. And he sort of talks about the importance of conservation. Conservationists don't worship the earth, but but we do treasure it and work for it, towards preservation and conservation. And only through education are we gonna get it done.
All right, the 50th anniversary, which uh, has just taken place of the of the, the official uh, certification of the Buffalo National River. That's they, right. Yeah. I can't wait to get back over there. It's a beautiful country. But could we close out with one little thing? Oh, I found it's yes. a gem, yes. too. It's wonderful. It's actually Dr. Neil Compton. This is in 1992, shot on film on the banks of the Buffalo River, and he sits and he just sings a little folk song. All right. We're going to listen to that. Randy Dixon was with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Put Pryor Center into a, into a search engine. You'll find all of this and much more. Randy, thank you. See you next week. There was an old man at the foot of the hill. If he ain't moved away, he's a living there still singing. Hi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye, fi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye day. Oh, the devil, he come to his house one day, and he said, one of your family I'm a-gonna take away. Sing hi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye, fi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye day. Take her on, take her on, with the joy of my heart, and hope by golly that you never part. Sing hi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye, fi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye day. So the devil put the old woman in a sack, and the old man said, don't you bring her back. Sing hi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye, fi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye day. When he got her down the gates of hell, he said, punch up the fire, boys, we'll scorch her well. Sing hi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye, fi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye day. Another little devil went a-dragging the chain. She went up with a hatchet and splits out his brain. Sing hi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye, fi, diddle-eye, diddle-eye day. The University of Arkansas Department of Political Science offers political science and public administration and nonprofit studies graduate programs. Both programs train the next generation of local, state, national, and global leaders in the public, nonprofit, and private sectors. Applications for fall 2022 and graduate assistantships are available for qualified applicants. plsc.uark.edu for more information. The Buffalo River isn't the only Arkansas natural feature celebrating 50 years as a recognized treasure. The Crater of Diamonds in Murfreesboro first became a state park in March 1972. It continues to operate as the only public diamond mine in North America. Park interpreter Wayman Cox says the park's diamond-bearing field is likely the result of a volcanic eruption that happened about 100 million years ago. The diamonds originated about 100 miles underground, and once they got up to about 600 feet below the surface, um, the pressure from the, from the magma uh, pressing up against the surface sediments actually overcame you know, the, the surface soil and it was like a giant bubble bursting basically is how I explain it to people. Diamonds were first discovered at the site in 1906, and it then operated as a commercial mine for about 40 years. Since then, Cox says it has been a popular tourist attraction where visitors get the chance to discover and keep a precious gem. I think it's that history. People come here in search of the diamonds, but they often you know, leave finding out more about themselves or learning more about you know, maybe their family's history here. Uh, you know, and that's that's what uh, those are really some of the true gems I think that uh, we enjoy hearing from our visitors is just their their ties with this place that they have. The park will hold a 50th anniversary celebration on Earth Day weekend, April 22nd and 23rd. It will feature games, guest speakers, and an exhibit of diamonds that have been found at the park. Admission is ten dollars, and you can find out more information online at the Crater of Diamonds State Park Facebook page. 
federal prisons struggled to contain large COVID outbreaks. Many inmates asked to be released home, but with little success. Many more people could have been transferred, there's no doubt, and that surely would have protected individuals who were both sent to home confinement and people who stayed behind. Nearly 300 federal prisoners have died from COVID-19. An NPR investigation looks at what went wrong. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered this afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF. And tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, we'll find out how a two-year pandemic is affecting food security for many Arkansans. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith is working on that story right now. Also tomorrow, a quick look at the next Broadway season at Walton Art Center. That season is being announced for the first time tonight and much more. Ozarks at Large, tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. And you can always hear the most recent version of our daily show by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Bush. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. We have been your public radio station for more than 36 years. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Help with show scheduling and creation provided by Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Contributors to our program today included Matthew Moore and Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. You can find out more by putting Pryor Center into a search engine. And additional content heard on our show today provided by the hardworking news staff at KUAR. That's Public Radio for Little Rock and all of Central Arkansas. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with you again tomorrow.